0: The Taliban find breathing room in Afghanistan today, Monday, February 25th. From Public Radio International, the BBC World Service, and WGBH Boston, this is The World. I'm Marco Werman. Evidence of abuses committed by Afghan forces being trained by U.S. Marines. We'll hear how that benefits the Taliban. And later, a prisoner's death sparked protests in the West Bank, one Palestinian lawmaker says the protests will escalate. This will begin very quickly this the citifada. Plus, confusing election results in Italy.
1: It's a complete and utter mess. The results are really surprising in a country that's used to dealing with a lot of political messes.
0: And horse meat is found in IKEA's
2: Swedish meatballs, but this food writer isn't shocked. Nothing here surprises me. I mean, I think squirrel meat might surprise me, but horse meat doesn't surprise me.
3: DRI's The World is supported by the Medtronic Foundation, inviting you to assist Minnesota Timberwolves' Ricky Rubio in an online simulation to learn how to save a life from sudden cardiac arrest, a leading cause of death among young athletes. Learn more at heartrescuenow.com. And by Warner Home Video with Argo, directed by Ben Affleck. Available on Blu-ray Combo Pack and digital download
0: tomorrow. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. Tension is running high in Israeli-occupied West Bank. Yes, that may sound like a familiar headline, but this time some say the tension could lead to a new Palestinian revolt or intifada. Palestinian protesters are angry about the death this weekend of a 30-year-old Palestinian man inside an Israeli jail. He'd been arrested earlier this month, suspected of throwing stones at Israeli soldiers. He was interrogated for several days while in custody. Palestinian officials claim he was tortured. Israel says it's still investigating. Meanwhile, the man's funeral was held today in a West Bank village outside the city of Hebron. The world's Matthew Bell was there.
4: Thousands of people came out for the midday funeral. They clogged the streets and stood on rooftops. Villagers, school kids, and lots of young men watched as the casket of Arafat Jaradat reached the tiny village cemetery. People chanted, God is great. The crowd waved Palestinian national flags alongside the banners of most political factions. The main factions are generally divided, but they came together today to mourn. Uniformed Palestinian soldiers and policemen leading the funeral procession led off a ceremonial burst of gunfire. At times like this, of high tension between Palestinians and Israel, the question often comes up, is this the start of a third intifada, or Palestinian uprising? Rami, a 20-year-old university student from Hebron who studies business, tells me he came to the funeral with his friends from school and they all hope to die as martyrs one day.
1: Palestine will not be liberated until we all sacrifice and feed its soil with our blood.
5: We
1: should not stay quiet. This is not the first prisoner who dies in Israeli jails. We have to continue this escalation of our protest.
4: Standing nearby, Palestinian lawmaker Anwar al-Zabun makes a prediction. This will
6: begin very quickly, this intifada.
4: Zabun says the U.S.-backed Palestinian Authority, or PA, will not be able to stop the outbreak of a large-scale uprising, even if it wants to.
6: I know that the PA tried to prevent this intifada. But, uh, you know, the occupation, aggression, and the pressure on the people here that will, uh, let's say, quickly begin the intifada, in my opinion, of course.
4: But not everyone is so sure. Aziz Dwayk, the West Bank leader of the Hamas militant group, stands in the crowd. He won't say if this is the start of another intifada.
7: Nobody is, you know, directing the people towards a goal, but it's the people themselves. The Palestinians, when they astonished the whole world by their first intifada, it was a popular movement which the people invented in order to protest occupation. And God only knows how the people will react this time.
4: For several days running, there have been clashes between Palestinians and Israeli soldiers in the West Bank, and there were more today. Palestinian President Mahmoud Abbas accused Israel of playing with the lives of Palestinian prisoners, and he said Israeli soldiers were using live fire against demonstrators. Palestinians reported 10 people injured outside Ramallah. The Israeli military confirmed several wounded, but said rubber-coated bullets were used, not live ammunition. An Israeli defense ministry official today said the Palestinian Authority is trying to walk a fine line. At the moment, he said the Palestinians do not want another intifada, but Israel can expect a large number of incidents in the near future. For The World, I'm Matthew Bell in Jerusalem. The near future in Afghanistan
0: includes the ongoing withdrawal of American and other foreign troops. The plan is to put Afghan government forces in total charge of their country's security by the end of 2014. In the Sangin district of Helmand province in southern Afghanistan, the process is at a very advanced stage. The BBC's Ben Anderson spent five weeks following a group of U.S. Marines who are advising Afghan police in Sangin before the handover of power there is completed next month. He found evidence of shocking abuses by the Afghan forces, including drug use, murder and child sex abuse. Here's Ben's report, which, by the way, paints a very unsettling picture.
2: What's he shooting at?
8: What are you shooting at? A seething US Marine Sergeant Major looms over a tiny Afghan policeman inside a watchtower made of sandbags. The police are firing wildly into an orchard because a couple of shots have just come in the direction of their tower. Civilians are nearby. It doesn't make any difference, the policeman's saying. The civilians are also Taliban. When we arrived, I actually saw him smoking a large joint. And now he's laughing and making childlike shooting noises, pointing his finger up at the Marine like a pistol. Some of his men are so high they can't stay standing. In Sangin, it's the least of the problems for Major Stuber, a bear of a man with a square jaw. He heads the team of just 18 US Marines whose job it is to advise the Afghan police throughout the whole district. There are 34 police bases, or PBs, in total. He starts by telling me about the corruption.
9: It's vast. Everything from uh, skimming ammunition off of their supplies, to skimming fuel off of their shipments. There's uh, false imprisonment. During an engagement, they'll just wrap everybody up that was around it and then they'll wait for the families to come in and, and pay them money to be able to release them.
8: Major Stuber admits he is often powerless to intervene.
9: As an advisor, you're a dog with a lot of bark and a lot, a lot of bite. You don't turn a blind eye to anything. We report everything, but there's certain things that in order for them to actually go out and still hold security and hold PVs, you, you kinda got let go. If we were to go in and shut down all of their corruption schemes, you would render them completely ineffective.
8: But there is one problem that Major Stuba can't ignore. On every police base you go to in Sanguin, you see a young boy who looks like a servant. They are known here as chai boys, and Major Stuber says they are often used for sex. Three boys have recently been shot dead for trying to escape the commanders who were abusing them. A fourth boy has just been shot and wounded. Major Stubra marches up to the police headquarters to confront the deputy police chief. Reclining on one of four creamy leather sofas, the only real furniture apart from a barely used desk in a sparse and dirty office, the deputy chief doesn't seem to understand what the fuss is about. The kids themselves want to stay at the patrol bases, he says, as if it's obvious, adding that they like giving their bodies. Major Stuber persists.
9: Let's do this. Let's get together and go out there and get these kids out of these PBs and get them back to their families.
8: The deputy chief eventually agrees to take action. We need to do this, he says. We need to take them back. But within hours, he cancels the operation and it still hasn't taken place. Major Stuber almost breaks down when he tells me about the things he has to deal with every day flinching over the sound of his own words.
9: The natural part of an advisor is you want to have the most effect on things. Try doing that day in and day out, working with child molesters, working with people who are robbing people, murdering them. It wears on you after a while.
8: The Afghan government says it is fighting corruption and that the police and armed forces are ready and willing to take full responsibility for the security of their country. But many Afghans I've spoken to fear another outcome entirely and suspect that with police behavior like this, the Taliban may well find an easy way back.
0: That was BBC reporter Ben Anderson in Sangin in Helmand province in Afghanistan. Ben joins us now on the line from London. Uh, This story is a sad one, Ben, the corruption, the chaos, the abuse. Did you get a sense that this is a widespread problem?
8: Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, I've been traveling to Helmand province for the last six years. And, and I've seen this many, many times. Um, this was just particularly bleak because Sangin is now controlled by the Afghan police and Afghan army. The, the 500 US Marines that remain there have pulled back to the main Ford operating base. So the Afghans are pretty much on their own. Um, and so, you know, things like child abuse and corruption were just just that much more widespread and that much more easy to see than, than normal.
0: And how does this fit into the bigger picture across the entire country?
8: Um it's it's certainly not as bad in other parts of the country, um, but you know, what worries me most about the South is that this feels like exactly the conditions in the early to mid nineties that meant that many southern Pashtuns welcomed the Taliban. You know, they saw the Taliban as the good, just Muslims who would remove these corrupt warlords and and these these, um, you know, corrupt government officials. And and it feels very much like that now, Um, you know, that the the local people want security and justice. and, And I'm afraid that with the awful behavior of the police in particular, that the Taliban look like they're the most likely to deliver security and justice.
0: I mean, one of the most shocking parts of the story you reported are these young boys used for sex at the police bases. Can you help us understand why this is seen as acceptable?
8: I, I wish I knew i mean it's it's a country you know which is, on the face of it appears to adhere very strictly to to Islam and some people condemn the practice and yet it's it's so widespread i mean almost almost every police commander in that region sees it as his right to abduct a young boy between the age of eleven, fourteen, fifteen, and have him as a servant and and sex slave and it's done it's done pretty openly i mean everyone knows who's doing it everyone knows who the chai boy is. How that squared with their religious beliefs, I I honestly don't know. I wish I did know. I'd I heard a few explanations. I mean, someone said that, you know, because women are, are so hidden away in Afghanistan, then a young boy is a companion who you can actually spend, uh, you know, you can actually take everywhere with you and he can be a companion uh, all the time in a way that, that women can't. But that, that doesn't explain the, the, the sexual abuse. I mean, one I confronted one police commander about the abuse and, mm. and he basically said, if the commanders don't have sex with the boys, who will they have sex with? You know, they, they must have sex with someone. So it might as well be these young boys seem to be the excuse. He even said that the boys are willing participants. He said they like being on the bases, they like giving up their bodies. He didn't use the word bodies, he used a, a worse word, but you you get the picture.
0: Uh, did you have a chance to speak with any of those boys?
8: No, because they're, a lot of them are put in, in uniform um, and given weapons so that the US Marines who do see them think they might just be very young-looking policemen. Not, But mm-hmm. I, I didn't get a chance to speak to them, no.
0: Now, at one point in your story, the US Major Stuber says that he's like a dog with a lot of bark and not a lot of bite. What can the Marines do? Do they have any power beyond their role as advisors?
8: Almost no power whatsoever. I mean, there were just 18 Marines who advise the police in that region. Uh, They go out every few days, which means on average, they get to each, each police base once every three weeks. And the Afghans know that they're leaving very soon. So, you know, they they can try and sort of do a damage limitation exercise, but as you can imagine, they have have very little influence.
0: I mean, depressingly, as you point out at the end of your story, Ben, th- this seems to leave some room for the Taliban, and I gather that there are some parallels with the original rise of the Taliban in the early nineties.
8: Absolutely, one of the first acts that you know brought Mullah Omar to prominence was was attacking a local warlord who had raped, I think, a young girl, not a young boy but eerily similar um, situations on the ground that led to the, the easy rise to power of the Taliban in the early to mid-90s. Um, and it wouldn't surprise me at all if, if the Taliban were certainly back in control in the South. You know, I, I think the people in the South want want two basic things, um, first and foremost, security and justice. And, and sadly, uh, the Taliban are the ones that can deliver that.
0: BBC reporter Ben Anderson, whose documentary on the current situation in Helmand province in Afghanistan, airs tonight on the BBC programme, Panorama. Ben, thank you very much. Thank you. There are more ways than ever to keep up with the world. Subscribe to our daily and weekly podcasts at theworld.org. And while you're there, if a story provokes you, join the conversation by adding your thoughts to any of our stories. We're also on Facebook at slash PRI the world. Or follow us on Twitter. We tweet at PRI the world. And for my thoughts and what I'm reading and seeing and thinking about, I tweet at Marco Werman. This is PRI. The World is brought to you by PRI with support from
3: the Medtronic Foundation, inviting you to assist Minnesota Timberwolves' Ricky Rubio in an online simulation to learn how to save a life from sudden cardiac arrest, a leading cause of death among young athletes. Learn more at
0: heartrescuenow.com. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. Italy's economic future looks uncertain as the country counts the votes from its general election. Italy faces ongoing economic and fiscal crises that could threaten the stability of the Eurozone and perhaps impact the whole global economy. But any hope that the election would show a clear way forward seems dashed. No political bloc looks set to command a majority in the new Italian parliament. That means instability and possibly even a new set of elections in a few months' time. Not the best way to deal with a crisis. Reporter Megan Williams in Rome says Italy faces gridlock.
1: It's a complete and utter mess. I mean, you know, the the results are really surprising in a country that's used to dealing with a lot of political messes. The Partito Democratico, the the center-left Democratic Party, it lost a lot of significant votes from the movement protest, the Beppe Grillo five-star movement protest, which is which is a shocker. I mean, people knew that Grillo was appealing to vast numbers of young people. You know, he's a comedian who became a blogger, who became a politician, and he's run this movement on the internet and in the piazzas and the squares, and he's, he's very appealing. But polls had him down, you know, around 15%. He's going to be taking 25% of uh, both the Senate and and the lower house. And and the loser here is the center-left party. And the winner, in a sense, too, is Silvio Berlusconi. I mean, he's obviously way down from what he was. He was about 40% last election in 2008. Now he's down to about 24%. But he's hung on to his followers throughout this whole election campaign, whereas the center-left Lost. So what this means is that nobody's strong enough. There's going to have to be alliances with strange bedfellows, and it's probably not going to last very long.
0: Mm. Now, back to Beppe Grillo and his throw the bums out uh, five star movement, which, as you pointed out, kind of courted a younger electorate in Italy. We we spoke about Beppe Grillo on Friday on the program. And as you say, uh, his party did pretty well, about 25 percent. But what is their plan for Italy?
1: Who knows? I mean, <laughs> this is the thing about Beppe Grillo. It's a protest movement. So they they hate politicians. I mean, this is a movement that started off with "Va Fanculo." F off to politicians. And you know, there's lots of good reasons to want to give the finger to politicians in Italy. But you know, the fact of the matter is, they're entering politics. They're going to be the representatives in the lower house and the senate. And uh, these are neophytes. These are people who were elected on the Internet. The other thing about the Grillo movement is that it's, it's run by Beppe Grillo, who's essentially an authoritarian. I mean, he's he's the one who decides everything. He's the one who goes to the piazzas and talks. He muzzles everybody else. But he himself couldn't run because he has a conviction of manslaughter. So he's not allowed to, to run for parliament. Really? So he's not even in there himself. And he's going to have to govern all of these young people. And, you know, there's just no telling what they're going to get up to. Some of them could be fined. Some of them could be bought off by the right, the left. Who knows?
0: So looking ahead, the bond markets today seem to be stable, meaning the markets seem to think Italy will stick to its reform plan. Uh, so the Italian election hasn't totally deflated confidence, it seems.
1: Well, I don't know. I mean, you know, the results aren't in yet. I think if the center-left is able to cobble together some sort of a coalition with Monti...
0: And that would be Mario Monti, uh, the outgoing prime minister.
1: Yes, Mario Monti, the economist who ran Italy's interim government for this past year, who tanked in this election. I mean, he's around 10%. Uh, nonetheless, if they're able to put together enough seats... And and form an alliance, then, you know, they can move ahead with with some sort of program.
0: Reporter Megan Williams in Rome. Thank you very much for this.
1: Thank you, Marco.
0: A political transition is underway in Cuba, too, only it's a slow motion transition there. Over the weekend, Cuban President Raúl Castro announced that he will step down in five years at the end of his second term as leader. That would put an end to the rule of Castro brothers Fidel and Raúl in power since 1959. His successor will probably be Miguel Díaz-Canel, the just-promoted first vice president. Díaz-Canel represents the next generation of Cuban leaders, and if he rises to the top job, he'd be the first president in Cuba who did not fight in the Cuban Revolution. So who is Díaz-Canel? Peter Cornblue co-authored the book Cuba Missile Crisis 1962 and is a Cuba analyst at the non-government National Security Archive. So few of us have heard of uh, Diaz-Canel. Uh, how did he rise so quickly, Peter, to the top?
5: Well, he's been minister of education since 2009, and clearly Raul Castro sees something in him as the next generation of leadership that he's tried to promote He's accompanied Raul Castro on international trips, most recently to Chile for a summit there. So he's being introduced in some ways to the Cuban people and to the world as the entrusted successor to the Castro era. Uh, that's not going to be tomorrow. It's not going to be next month. It's not going to be next year. But it might actually end up being sooner than five years from now.
0: What, why sooner rather than later?
5: You know, Raul Castro kind of went out of his way to to joke about his possible retirement in the aftermath of the Pope's retirement. And um, the interpretation of that is, is that he's reserving the right to step down uh, if he feels he's gotten too old, uh, that he's not necessarily dedicated to dying in office as everybody thought that his brother would or that he would. You know, what you're seeing here is extremely pragmatic, methodical progression of events that many observers around the world never would have thought possible. Raul Castro slowly but surely pushing for significant social and economic reforms in Cuba and going out of his way this past weekend to to say, we are ready for uh, the next generation of leadership in this country.
0: What does it mean? What will it mean for Cubans to have a president who did not play a part in the Cuban revolution? I mean, psychically, what would that mean for the country?
5: Well, the majority of people in Cuba are are too young to have been part of the revolution themselves. And even though the revolution is obviously legendary and a, a critical component of the psyche of the nation, Many Cubans, uh, I think, are ready to move beyond that history and be part of the modern world. And they have seen the economic reforms that that Raul Castro uh, has been implementing uh, as something very positive. His most recent reform was liberalizing the freedoms of Cubans to travel abroad and come back when they want, which is a completely uh, kind of new situation for the Cubans that can afford to do that. What kind of message do you think was intended for the U.S. by this announcement? Um, In the United States, people think that Cuba does things as messages to Washington. But in fact, Raul Castro's decisions and and Miguel diaz Canal's ascendancy is totally a Cuban issue. It's unrelated to any efforts to sway the United States one way or the other. Uh, Nevertheless, the United States, for the first time, sees the possibility of a post-Castro era in Cuba The temptation would be to say we should just wait until the Castros are gone. But in truth, it might be much more recommendable to move now to start to build better relations with Cuba while Raul is there and has the interest in better relations with Cuba rather than to wait for somebody that they don't know and are not sure about his inclination towards relations with the United States. So the United States really has an opportunity now that, that Cuba is starting what uh, Raul Castro himself calls a historical transcendence in its leadership.
0: Peter Cornblue, Cuba analyst at the National Security Archive. Thank you.
5: You're welcome, Marco.
0: I'm Marco Werman. Coming up on the program, what scientists can learn about language acquisition by studying the larynx of someone making these sounds. <laughs> Taking an MRI of a beatboxer's voice box, that's ahead on the world. PRI's The World is supported
3: by the Medtronic Foundation, inviting you to assist Minnesota Timberwolves' Ricky Rubio in an online simulation to learn how to save a life from sudden cardiac arrest, a leading cause of death among young athletes. Learn more at heartrescuenow.com.
0: I'm Marco Werman, and this is The World, a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. If you know IKEA, you know it's not just about the sleek Scandinavian furniture. It's also about the meatballs. No matter where in the world you visit an IKEA location, you can count on finding the Swedish meatballs at that store's cafe. There's even a Facebook fan page for them. Well, today IKEA announced some bad meatball news. The company said traces of horse meat were found in the meat bowls sold at stores in the Czech Republic and a dozen other European countries. And so once again, Europe's horse meat scandal widens. Mark Bittman writes about food for the New York Times. So you're well aware, Mark, that we live in a world with scores of ingredients in processed foods. What is your take on this horse meat business?
2: I don't even get why it's a scandal, because generally speaking, people who eat at places like, for example, Ikea, have no idea what's in the food that they're putting in their mouths. So the fact that it's horse meat instead of cow meat, I mean, they're very closely related. One has a long head. One is skinnier. Uh, You know, it just doesn't seem like that big a deal to me.
0: Sounds kind of cynical. I mean, uh, what about good old truth in
2: advertising? You're buying a meatball that's supposed to be beef and you get a horse. I'm just saying nothing here surprises me. I mean, I think squirrel meat might surprise me, but horse meat doesn't surprise me.
0: First of all, why do you think this is happening? Is it just because horse meat is cheaper and companies are trying to pinch
2: pennies? Anyone who buys ground meat on a kind of mass level, industrially produced, is rolling the dice. And um, it's easy to make jokes about this stuff, but... You know, people die from eating pre-ground meat. And um, I think there are food safety issues that are much, much more important than whether there's a little horse meat mixed in with the cow meat.
0: So if you're saying horse meat won't harm you, what for you then is the big issue with this news?
2: Food safety issues are big issues. Is the food supply safe? But the other thing is, how is the food produced? And, you know, for all we know, uh, a strict locavore, who was into sustainable food, might find this horse meat much less objectionable than the cow meat that's being used in this program. Maybe the horses were reared on pasture. They were out grazing. Maybe they were wild. How lovely. It's not so much the species that we're eating. It's the way, for the most part, that they're being raised and that they're being handled and marketed. So, I mean, I get that some people are freaked out about eating horse, but that really isn't the primary question. If the primary question is truth in advertising, yeah, that's a big deal. If the primary question is what's in the food supply, that's a big deal. But horse per se is not a big deal.
0: How do you kind of then say, all right, companies, you've got to put in the food, what you're selling. If you call it a beef meatball, it's got to be a beef meatball.
2: At that point, you need many inspectors and you need a serious inspection and food safety services. We have some of the infrastructure for that, but one budget cut after another, including possibly a massive one upcoming, I guess it's Friday or whatever the first is, makes it so that even a well-intentioned meat inspection service would not be able to do its job because there just aren't enough people. What is horse meat
0: like? Have you tasted
2: it? (laughs) You know, they used to sell a lot of horse meat in Rome. You'd eat horse, basically tartare, that is raw. It was very red and rich And good. I mean, and and pretty much indistinguishable from good beef. Blindfolded especially, most people couldn't tell the difference.
0: And what about Ikea meatballs? you think blindfolded you could tell the difference between a straight-up beef Ikea meatball and uh, uh, one tainted with horse meat?
2: (laughs) Well, first of all, I think there's pork also in Ikea meatballs. So, So you've already got a mixed meat situation. It's very, very hard to distinguish. Do you like them? I think they remind me of the stuff they used to call Salisbury Steak when I was in high school, which goes back, you know, 45 (laughs) years. I remember um, this. There's a little bit of an emotional thing going on there, but it's sort of a comfort food thing. But I do not go out of my way to have them, no.
0: New York Times food writer Mark Bittman, thanks as always. Great to be here. Thank you for having me. By the way, IKEA says the horse meat scandal does not affect stores here in the U.S. Still, we decided to ask customers at the IKEA store in Brooklyn, New York— what they thought of the iconic meatballs now. Here's what they told us.
10: I usually buy them because my girls love them, my two daughters, and I didn't buy them today just because I read in the newspaper that some of them have been found with traces of horse
11: meat.
3: You know what we eat in Russia, we eat that meat. It's good
12: meat. It's like regular meat. <laughs> I know. <laughs> Man, what what can I say?
11: There's not even a question. I love the meatballs. I'm telling you that. I really love the meatballs. I come like three times a week. It really tastes good. Some of my uncles eat horse. It's just I never tried it. I never ate a horse.
0: Customers at the Brooklyn IKEA earlier today sharing their thoughts on the horse meat scandal that's expanded to include IKEA meatballs in Europe. Now, today's GeoQuiz is about a new electric car charger network. Plugging in and recharging your EV car battery just got a little easier in the Baltic country we're looking for today. It's installed a new network of fast chargers all around the country. They're scattered all the way from Narva on the Russian border to Tallinn, the capital on the Gulf of Finland. This country's no stranger to innovation. Its computer programmers get credit for inventing Skype, and the government has long championed using the latest technology in the classroom. Now the country's embracing renewable energy and electric cars.
7: The earlier we learn the problems of this technology and the challenges, the better we are prepared for the future. That's that's our motto here.
0: So, can you name the northern European country we're talking about? The answer is coming up in a bit. Now to one of the poorest nations in Europe, Bulgaria. Over the weekend, thousands of Bulgarians marched through the streets of the capital, Sofia, to protest corruption and the rising costs of living. Nationwide demonstrations last week led to the resignation of the country's prime minister. You'd expect Bulgarians to look for some solace from religion and the election of a new leader for the Bulgarian Orthodox Church. But the church itself has been embroiled in scandal, as Matthew Brunwasser reports from Sofia.
12: It was a proud moment for Bulgarians. In a special election, the Bulgarian Holy Synod had made a choice. A clearly emotional spokesman made the announcement immediately after the vote. He said it's the first time in more than 600 years that Bulgaria had freely chosen its own spiritual leader and wholly autonomous patriarch. So the grand spiritual pageantry in Bulgaria's St. Alexander Nevsky Cathedral, the gold robes and the choir, stoked national pride. But the Bulgarian church hasn't been much of a moral role model for several generations. The Bulgarian media is filled with images like this fuzzy hidden camera video of a bishop demanding payment for an interview when the reporter protests the bishop drops the price from 35 to $25,000 but that kind of corruption is only the tip of the iceberg the total lack of public scrutiny has resulted in this massive
6: uh, market for for church property
12: philip gunev is with the center for the study of democracy in sofia he says the bulgarian church is a mess For starters, the church is the second biggest landowner in the country after the state. Secrecy and poor management has made it an easy target for organized crime groups. The Holy Synod, which governs the church, is infested with men with files in the former state security police, meaning they informed on others and did the bidding of the Communist Party. And the reason why the association with former secret police is important
6: is because The economic elite and the criminal elite of Bulgaria is
12: largely associated with the former secret police. Theologian Venceslav Karavulchev says the situation is painful, but not entirely shocking. Most of our hierarchy, people who are on the top, our bishops, not bad people, but not wise people, not well-educated people. And for a small profit are able to do big mistakes. Kara Volchev says the communists intentionally recruited immoral and intellectually inferior people to staff the church, as well as other institutions. Eleven of the 14 bishops who chose the new patriarch have been revealed as collaborators. The church, for its part, is planning to canonize some martyrs of the communist era. Thousands of priests were killed or imprisoned, but the church has never publicly addressed its support for the communist regime. Desislava Panejotova is with the Holy Synod's Cultural Department. She says the current church officials who collaborated were working for the national interest, not that of the Communist Party.
3: Most of them are decent and uh, helpful to the development of the church life. I think that the repenting has taken place in their hearts, and this is the most important for me.
12: But for many, this still doesn't repair the damage done by keeping silent for so long. Theologian Georgi Todorov says the church's failure to publicly atone for its sins makes the collaboration appear worse than it really was. They should have honestly have said it
2: something like two, three, four months after the fall of communism, confessed it to the public, repented and said, "Okay, we have done this political
12: compromise, but this is brother's a political issue. Please don't overestimate it. Today is the new patriarch's first day in office and expectations are high, but not too high, as His Holiness Patriarch Neophyt of Bulgaria himself has a record as a collaborator in the files of the former state security. For the world, I'm Matthew Brunwasser in Sofia, Bulgaria.
0: We've got to plug in and charge our batteries to get to the answer to today's geo quiz. That's because our European destination is one of the first countries to install a nationwide system of quick chargers for electric vehicles, also known as EVs. Yermo Tuisk is in charge of the new electromobility program. Yermo, tell us where you are right now and how close is the nearest charging station.
7: Uh, Right now I'm here in Tallinn, and it's roughly 500 meters, uh, the closest quick charger, yeah.
0: 500 meters is the closest one to your house in Tallinn, which is the capital of Estonia. So essentially, Estonia is going to try to get more people to drive electric cars. How's the program actually going to work?
7: We have uh, like three cornerstones in program. First, of course, it's the setting up of necessary infrastructure to give uh, kind of a safety net to the early adopters that nobody's left on the road. The second part is a large-scale demonstration. So we put actually the EVs to every corner of a country. So that's the 500 electric vehicles the government purchased as a part of a program. And the third part is purchase incentives to every buyer who would like to purchase an EV. So the the grant rate is roughly 50% of a initial cost of a car, you can get the EV, uh, like Nissan Leaf or Mitsubishi Aimee with a price of 14,000 to 18,000 euros in Estonia. So it's right, so rather comparable about to- About
0: 21,
7: $23,000. Yeah, 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 yeah. Our idea was that uh, let's create this full ecosystem at once, because if you just deal with one or another aspect, you cannot pull things off, so to say. <laughs> Uh, and when you
0: say no one's going to be left on the road, does that mean that the, the nearest charging station is just going to be like uh, as far as you can push your car? Because that could uh, be... <laughs>
7: almost, almost. <laughs> I think it's basically if you see that the range is uh, dropping near 30 kilometers then you you can be rather sure that you can uh,
0: reach quick charging. What what does happen if you virtually run out of gas or run out of juice in the middle we of a highway? Out
7: of gas. We have also contracted what we call pickup service. And you can order a pickup car, which can then pull it to the nearest quick charging station. But since we do have the online map uh, available of chargers, I believe that the users are rather... Uh, feel rather comfortable of driving around in Estonia and and find the nearest quick charger. Basically, the locations are in your GPS device as well.
0: I assume you drive an electric car. Yes, I do. (laughs) Do you have to use a charging station near your house or do you just plug your car in at home?
7: I like to charge during my office hours, basically, because the car is parked over the office hours. Mostly I use quick chargers over weekends.
0: And uh, when was the last time you actually bought gasoline? And how much have you saved since you got an electric car?
7: Honestly, I don't remember. And <laughs> when, when was the last time I visited gas station? <laughs> it's great. It, I'm jealous. It's in summer, but uh, I have saved quite a lot of money already. <laughs>
0: no, of course you offset gasoline purchases, but you also end up by using a lot of electricity. And if more people are getting e cars, where is all that electricity coming from?
7: In Estonia. We use only renewable energy for electric vehicles.
0: That's incredible. Are you using wind? Or...
7: Mostly wind. It's mm. like a 90% wind
0: energy. That's extraordinary.
7: Uh, but uh, the usage of electricity by electric vehicles is really marginal compared to overall, let's say, electricity consumption by, by households or industry. So you basically don't even notice, even if the numbers are going to be larger. Like right now we have roughly 600 EVs, but even if we have, let's say, 10,000, 20,000 EVs, you don't even notice they're we're charging in the, in the network. So Very cool. I made a, one funny calculation that it takes roughly uh, five minutes of our wind parks to work per day to charge all the EVs in Estonia so How many just, minutes just 5 minutes Just 5 minutes for wind, all the wind parks to work so It will take probably 2 or 3 years you'll see more more things like we do here happening all around the Europe
0: Yermo Tuisk is in charge of the new electromobility program in Estonia Estonia is the answer to our geo quiz Yermo thank you very much
7: Yeah no problem you're welcome
0: This is PRI Public Radio International I'm Marco Werman, and this is The World.
8: Good cold evening, gentlemen. I'm Dr. King Schultz. Amongst your inventory, I've been led to believe is a specimen I'm keen to acquire. That's Austrian
0: actor What's Christoph it? Waltz in the film Django Unchained. Last night, he picked up his second Academy Award for Best Supporting Actor. The first one was for Inglorious Bastards in 2009, another Quentin Tarantino film. Natalie Jamieson is entertainment reporter for the BBC Radio 1 program Newsbeat. She says the Vault's Tarantino team was a match made in heaven.
10: Christoph Foltz just ended up doing an ordinary audition for Quentin Tarantino for *Inglorious Bastards. And Tarantino got to that point where he didn't think he was going to be able to find an actor who would be able to portray this character of Colonel Hans Lander. And it was an actor that he needed to be fluent in English, French and German and obviously have this incredibly menacing presence, but with a certain charm as well. Mm. And Tarantino has been quoted as saying, literally, Christoph Foltz walked into the room and that was it. The relationship just went from there. And I think from the moment you see him on screen in Inglorious Bastards, there's no doubt that Christoph Waltz steals that movie.
0: And he's a classically trained actor uh, out of the Lee Strasberg School. Uh, did you feel the sense that uh, those chops come out?
10: I think so. I mean, interestingly, I've interviewed Christoph Waltz a few times and he thinks that Quentin Tarantino and himself just feed off each other and they instinctively know what each other wants to get and they just spark. It just works.
0: Well, there's a perfect clip where he talks about that uh, from your interview with him in which he talks about having the right tools for Tarantino's roles. Here's uh, Christoph Waltz.
7: With Quentin, I always have the
3: feeling that um, he wants what I have at my disposal that I can apply my uh, abilities. He wants what I have.
0: And you know what? I want what he has. And he's happy to give what he has. (laughs) Sounds a little menacing right there as he (laughs) describes it. So now he's got this uh, second Best Supporting Actor for Django Unchained. His role is Dr. King Schultz. What was your reaction to him getting it a second time with a Tarantino film?
10: I mean, I have to say, I I really hope that he was going to get this. And I think he was... He was definitely a favourite in that category. He's so close with Tarantino now that when Tarantino was writing the script for Django Unchained, he would get Christoph Waltz and some of other of his very close actor friends such as Samuel L. Jackson. They come in at very early stages while he's still writing the script and they started to almost develop the character together. I think it was really great that he won that and also that Tarantino won the original screenplay Oscar as well because mm. I think it's just those words and the life that Christoph Waltz brings to them
0: Natalie Jamieson, entertainment reporter for the BBC Radio 1 program Newsbeat. Thanks for speaking with us.
10: Thank you. That was great.
0: Finally today, an experiment in how we humans create sound. We all grow up with a native language, a mother tongue, and linguists believe that our mother tongue places limits on the sounds we're actually able to make. We can utter familiar sounds with little effort, but when confronted with the sounds of another language, it's more difficult. We have to train ourselves in those sounds, and even then we're likely to utter them with an accent. But what about people who seem able to make many more sounds beyond those of their own mother tongue? A team of researchers at the University of Southern California wanted to find out more, so they used an MRI machine to look inside the larynx of a beatboxer, you know, a solo musician who's using just his mouth to make percussion sounds. The BBC's Tom Bateman begins his report with a bit more background on beatboxing. It all began in the
13: 1980s playing records and pretending to be a drum machine then it became an art form in its own right beatboxing is one of the most complex types of
6: sounds that humans can create and so we're interested in knowing about how people do these very complex percussive sounds and do it along with uh you know uh, melodic
13: artistic expressions. Sri Narayanan is a professor of engineering at the University of Southern California. He's been spending his time putting a beatboxer inside a one million pound MRI machine. We had the person uh,
6: lying down in the scanner and we recorded it real time. We wanted our subject to be able to produce drum effects and you know various kick effects and room shots while they are being imaged.
7: I want to bus just
0: how I feel. To the two, we're off.
13: The MRI images were captured while these audio recordings were made of the musician. Narayanan says the most intriguing result from the pictures was that certain vocal movements were borrowed from languages that weren't native to the beatboxer.
6: Even though this particular artist was producing very complex sounds and sequence, you know, which he's learned to do, the primitives are the sounds that he's drawing upon. We can see that some of these sounds are found in languages like Quechua, in, of Peruvian language, Hosa of South African language, you know, which has clicks and these kinds of ejective mechanisms. Languages from Chechnya, some of the North American languages. We could use the same sort of tools to describe the sounds of the world's languages to describe the sounds that the beatbox artist was producing. Oh, oh, oh.
11: My name is Grace Savage. I'm actually the female UK beatbox champion. It's about pressure and release. So with the kick drum, all the pressure behind the, the mouth, the air, is being pushed out, and the noise is when it's released. would be a hi-hat, it would be a snare, but there's lots of different snares. There's a... or a... or even a... And they're called inward snares, the, the last couple I did, and that's how you take a breath when you're beatboxing, because obviously you're expelling lots of air. You need to gain it back, so... Oh, yeah, you yeah, 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 bring it on.
12: That's
13: amazing. That's so the <laughs> oh, Hold
2: to the are to the pitch to the sound oh. to the and the the
13: most impressive things i think about beatboxing is being able to do sort of bass sounds or scratching sounds and or or even kind of vocal parts and put them together it's as though two things are happening at the same time yeah how do you do that
11: that's kind of an auditory illusion a common example which lots of people use is razelle's if your mother only knew slow down it sounds like i do it the same time yeah, we'll it's biff your mother p um, uh, new
13: Narayanan says that beatboxing like singing shows how far human vocal ability can be stretched but it's humbling he says that while the art form can be learned we remain a long way from fully understanding the mechanics that allow it
6: it's very astonishing how we coordinate the tip of the tongue with the back of the tongue with you know the movement of the velum and the expansion of the fairings all over time in a very complex way. It's almost like playing in a complicated instrument, which is what it is. Switch the
11: beat.
0: British champion beatboxer Grace Savage ends Tom Bateman's report. And also our program today, we have video from a couple of MRI larynx scans, one of a beatboxer, the other, for comparison, a soprano. That's at theworld.org. From the Nan and Bill Harris studios at WGBH, I'm Marco Werman. Thank you for listening. Don't, don't,
11: don't, 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 do Let me
3: The World is a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI and WGBH, supported in part by Nan and Bill Harris, committed to supporting objective, unbiased reporting on national and international issues. By the Skoll Foundation, supporting social entrepreneurs and their innovations to solve the world's most pressing problems at skoll.org. The Luce Foundation's Henry R. Luce Initiative on Religion and International Affairs by the Annenberg Foundation and by the PRI Trust for Innovation, which enables informed risk-taking in the creation of new content for public radio. Donors to the trust include Marguerite Steed Hoffman, the Tagney Jones Family Fund, and the Rose Family Fund.
12: PRI Public Radio
3: International.